Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 79 and it's a very special, special episode for me because I had the opportunity to interview a gentleman that is an American hero. He is a global hero and he is, in my estimation, a real life Forrest Gump. Uh, his name is Mr. Charles Surrey. Mr. Surrey is 97 years old. Mr. Surrey lives in Columbus, Ohio. And in the early 40s, he was an integral piece in Ohio State winning the first ever national championship in school history under Coach Paul Brown. And he is an amazing human being. Uh, just days, weeks after he won that national championship, In 1942, he was drafted into the service, as so many of his peers were, to fight for the Allied forces in World War II. Ultimately, Mr. Surrey was awarded the Bronze Star for heroism in the Battle of the Bulge. And I learned his story. Back in 2014, I was sent to Columbus, Ohio, to cover the Ohio State Buckeyes in the inaugural college football playoff. And in on one of the afternoons when I was meandering around the Woody Hayes complex during that lengthy assignment for the college football playoff, I happened upon a plaque hanging on the wall in the Woody Hayes Center. And they have a wall that is dedicated to veterans who played Ohio State football. And Mr. Surrey's plaque was on that wall. And I want to read you the citation that was written on June 10th, 1945 from the headquarters of the 69th Infantry Division of the U.S. Army. Corporal Charles A. Surrey, 1530-7118, Field Artillery, United States Army, for heroic achievement in connection with military operations against the enemy on 2 March 1945 in Germany. Corporal Surrey, working with an artillery forward observer section with utter disregard for his own safety, braved enemy mortar, artillery, and small arms fire in order to repair wire lines vital to direction of artillery. Corporal Surrey volunteered to carry a message to the liaison officer traveling alone and under murderous enemy fire. His courage and voluntary risks reflect the highest credit upon Corporal Surrey and the armed forces of the United States. By command of Major General Reinhardt, and this was signed by Lieutenant Colonel Adjunct General H. Pingelli, I think uh, is how you say that name. Award of Bronze Star Medal. Absolutely amazing. And I can't wait for you guys to hear this interview. To sit across the way from a gentleman who has achieved so much. To hear firsthand his memories of those moments walking through the black forest in the bitter cold, such cold that it chills your bones, such sacrifice that we cannot fathom it, such bravery 
that gave us the world in which we currently live and the freedom that we currently enjoy. This is going to be an interview that moves you guys. This is going to be an interview that makes you reflect on the freedom that you have. How does Mr. Surrey consider the circumstances that led to him being awarded the Bronze Star? To what degree does he consider those actions heroic? What does he think about the world in which we currently live? There's so much that came from this interview that, for me, was so educational and so humbling and made me feel extremely small. And I can't wait for you guys to hear this. Prepare yourselves because this is a 97-year-old gentleman who has achieved so much. And I can tell you that for 40 or 50 years, he locked this information away in the back of his brain and would not discuss it. He put it away because it was so wretched. I am so honored to have had the opportunity to sit down with Mr. Surrey and that he agreed to sit down with me. This is my interview with decorated war hero, Ohio State All-American, Mr. Charles Surrey. How would you describe your football career at Ohio State University? Pretty exciting. It was a great time to play and be playing football. I had a wonderful sense of camaraderie with a great number of guys. And there's nothing quite like winning a national championship to make everything nice. That 1942 season was extremely special. Yes, it was. What stood out most about that 1942 season? Well... We didn't have high expectations in terms of a championship, that kind of thing. And I think it was one of those things where we started slowly and we just kept building and building and getting better and better. And I didn't even know we were in competition for the national championship until the last two weeks of the season. There were three teams ahead of us. Now, all three of them lost the last week of the season, and we became number national champion. It was a real surprise. The week before you guys played Michigan, Michigan beat Notre Dame. Yeah. You guys entered that game as substantial underdogs. Yes. What do you remember about that Michigan game? Oh, I have to remember the block punt. I mean... All my life I wanted to block a punt. I could never block a punt, but somehow, miraculously, the ball hit my hand. I thought, oh my God, I did it. It's exciting. What do you remember about that moment, your teammates, the atmosphere? Well, well, the crowd noise. And uh, I was just shocked that it happened because it never happened before. I was not one of these guys that could block punts all the time. I was at the right place at the right time. You were able to be an All-American in that 1942 season. What did it mean to you to earn that distinction? Well, I was very proud, of course. Uh, but I was, I was surprised at the backing I got from Paul Brown. He, he made a comment that appeared in the paper. He called me the perfect tackle. I never thought of myself as perfect. I thought of all sorts of imperfections. 
And, but that's what made me All-American was Paul Brown saying that nice state, making that nice statement about me. What was it like to play for Paul Brown? It was exciting because the guy was well-organized, great communicator, a great psychologist. He knew how to talk to his players individually, and he knew what buttons to press to get the most out of them. What buttons did he have to push to get the best out of you? Well, for example, we were going to play University of Southern California, and he told me they have a tackle weighs 250. I weighed 210. And he kept telling me how big this guy was, how strong he was, how powerful he was. When I played in the game, first play of the game, I hit the guy under the chin and knocked him out. He got me so worked up, there's no other way I had to kill him or be killed. What did that 1942 national championship mean to Ohio State University, to the fan base? That's harder for me to answer. I don't know. It was exciting to us as players to be the first team to make it at that level. I don't. I, I can't honestly say what that meant because we won the championship and then we all went into the military right after that. So we didn't have the chance to enjoy the atmosphere of being the national champion. We were gone. I was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in boot, in boot training. How, how soon after you won the national championship were you drafted? Within two or three months. I was on my way to Mississippi. So you were completely unable to celebrate the national championship. That's right. We didn't have the celebration. It was a different time. There was no parade in the streets or anything like that. We just had to all go to war. It was a different time. How would you describe that time? Well, it was very serious. It was very heavy because it was we were at war. And we had friends and family that were at war, that were in the war. So there was a kind of serious atmosphere because of the reality of it. It was not... Not kid stuff anymore. What was that reality? Oh, I don't know that I can describe that easily because everybody has their own perceptions of things. And but I, I think the fact that we were at war made us realize we were more unified as a country. We weren't as divided as a country, and there was a sense of community that I don't feel today, but I did feel at that time. Could you describe that, the way you felt? Oh, not really. It's just a, it's just more a sense of being able to share feelings, goals, ideas with people. There wasn't a sense of the guys on the wrong side of the street or anything like that. It was more of an acceptance of everybody because we were in together. We were together fighting a war. What do you remember about getting the call that you were going to be drafted? Oh, I don't remember much of anything except I accepted it because I knew it was coming. We all knew it was coming because everybody, everybody else was drafted. We knew it was just a matter of time. What, what was Hattiesburg, Mississippi? Boot camp. Well, what do you remember? My Army serial number, 15, 30, 71, 18. I still remember that, my Army serial number because in boot training... They had you say your army serial number every day, every time. Why? <laughs> Tell me why. <laughs> the military does that for some reason or another. 
But it was very intense, typical mood training. And what can I say? It was hard. It was difficult. But fortunately, I was in good condition, so it wasn't a big deal. And and how did your military experience progress from there? You you, you finished boot camp, and then what happened? Then they decided that I probably should be an officer. So they decided to send me back to college. And they sent me to the Newark College of Engineering in New Jersey and had me take mathematics, physics, even though I had an art background. Very logical, isn't it, for me to go into <laughs> math and physics and so on. And then I was there for about a year, and then following that, I went overseas into the European theater. What was that moment like when you left the United States and made your way to the European theater? Well, it was strange because we went by boat. We went all the way across the Atlantic by boat. And I remember seeing this guy standing on the boat, and I recognized him as somebody I knew back at the university. And got up close, and he started making these funny little drawings. Who is this guy? It was Roy Lichtenstein. No way. Roy was a friend of mine, and after the war, we became friends because he was in the art department, and we both became assistant professors in the art department, and we became good friends. Wow. What happened when you reached Europe? I went to England. I was in England for a few weeks, going through some basics. And then from there, we went into, uh, I think, Belgium somewhere, and, and shortly afterwards entered the Battle of the Bulge. Mr. Surrey, how would you describe your experience in the Battle of the Bulge? Well, it's hard to put into words. One of the things I remember immediately is how cold it was. It was deadly cold in the wintertime. And it was very lonely. And But at the same time, in the background, you had all this noise of bombs going off, artillery shells exploding periodically which reminded you that, uh, that something is chasing you. And, and I was scared because not, I didn't have a constant sense of fear, but periodically I said, this is for real. This could get me. And you get very uneasy in a time like that when you see a finger or a body part on the road. You wonder, that could be me. I don't know if other people thought the same way I did, but that's the way I thought about it. And it was very uncomfortable and unpleasant. But on the other hand, there were moments when you accepted the reality that you were in, and you could block it more. But periodically, this would be an uneasy feeling that would come back to haunt you. You know the fingers or the body parts... What's it like to go through a day seeing those things? I can't answer that. I, I, I can't put that into words. It's strange. It's a sense of, of reality that is very different than anything you've ever experienced. It's something different. Does it harden you? It had an effect on me because I think I couldn't even talk about the war for about 40 years after, the war, after I came back. Why? I don't know. I blocked it. I don't know why. It was ugly. I hated it. I hated being there. Why did you hate it so badly? 
I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't like being in the war. I didn't like killing people. It's just that simple. I knew what it was all about. I knew that we were fighting Nazi Germany and there were problems. But I truly didn't understand the implications of what I was doing. I, it, just, it took me years later before I understood much of why I was there and what I was doing. After you had the opportunity to reconcile that and study it in your mind, why do you believe you were there? Oh, I was there because of the rise of Nazi, Nazi Germany, of the kind of society it represented, what it, what it represented for the human race. It was frightening. I understood it. I saw the implications of it for people at every level. And so, in hindsight, I understood why I was there. How do you believe you and your brothers in World War II shaped or reshaped the world? Uh, I don't think I thought about it in those terms. I think people tell me that's what we did after the fact, after it happened. But as I go back and I looked at World War II and I realized eight million Russians died, soldiers died, seven million Germans died, about three million Japanese died, soldiers, not to mention the people that were wounded. I mean, and I think millions and millions of civilians that were killed in the war. It was an awful time for the human race. I mean, those are the things that I think about in hindsight. And I'm, it just scares the hell out of me when I see people talking about atom bombs and letting it go and what this is going to do to the planet, what this will do to the human race. It will destroy society. It will destroy the human race. It's not simple like a war, war, World War One, or World War Two. What we were getting into today is more complicated. The war was in the 1940s. Right. It's 2019. I see a certain anger within you, even still. How how, how accurate is that? Anger. I, I see. I see a. I see an intensity within you. That still seems very fresh. Well, I guess I feel strongly about the society and where, where it's going today. I, get, I don't want to get into it, but I, I get involved in... I'm not in the politics, but I watch politics. And I'm very concerned about how divided the country is. Because when I came along as a young man the country was more together, so to speak. There was a sharing of purpose in, during World War I between everybody. Everybody understood why we were there, for the, I think, for the most part. And there wasn't the kind of divisiveness that you have today, which is sad, very sad, and very destructive, I think. How would you describe what it was like walking through the Black Forest? Oh, silent at times, very cold, very cold. I remember the cold as much as anything. I, I didn't have time to think about the animals in the forest or whether there was something else going on. I was just 
in survival mode. What was it like coming home from that? What was the challenge of going back to well life uh, in the States? <clears throat> it was exciting to come back. And as I said earlier, I blocked the war. I put it in back of me. And it was exciting to come back to go to the university to complete my education. This was really great. And education was very important to me because I, I came up from a background of immigrants. And my father was a coal miner and a shoemaker. And I was the first child that went to college only because of football. And it was an opportunity for me to have a better life. And I appreciated that. And so I took it seriously. And it was very important to me. Important to me is important to my family that I succeed at something. And, and I didn't realize until many years later, I have a lot of intellectual curiosity. And the university was an environment that I loved the environment. I loved the differences, the different disciplines, and meeting different kinds of people. And that kind of stimulation was invigorating to me. We'll get into computer animation in a moment, but so many of, of your generation, the greatest generation, who fought so selflessly for our freedom have passed on, and they don't have a voice anymore. What, what would you say about you and your brothers in that generation and the sacrifice that you guys made to go over there and fight for America and the Allied forces? Well, I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. It's a, to answer it in different ways. I'm here for all those ways. You answer them however you want. I think that the idea of democracy was so prevalent and sort of part of our psyche, so to speak, that when we got the call to go to war, we accepted it. We didn't resist it the way that, for instance, uh, people resisted the Vietnam War, that kind of thing, and the problems they had there. You were told to go to war, this was your duty, and so you went. You accepted it, and, and as we understood the cause we were fighting for, it just kind of worked out. What's the value of freedom? That's too complicated to answer with the value of freedom. Uh, the freedom to do what you want to do, the freedom to speak what you like to speak, to live the kind of life you'd like to live is very precious. To have some privacy is precious. Uh, I can't imagine living in a society where I was told to do everything in a certain way. I would be terrified of that kind of society. I probably would rebel, but I don't know which way. I might not. I might submit. I don't know. But I would hate and I dread the thought of something like that. Don't you understand that if you and so many didn't go fight that war so selflessly, that might be where we live now? In hindsight, yes, I understand it, but I didn't, I didn't realize, I was too young to realize the full implications of what I was doing. I was 20 years old. What do you know when you're 20? 
You don't know very much. You think you do. You think you know everything, but you don't really know much about life. It's 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 a, it's miraculous to me, uh, and and I don't know I don't know how I could begin to articulate how humbling it is to have the opportunity to chat with you about it because I I personally don't believe that we as a people respect freedom enough respect the opportunity that we can walk out that door every single day and go do and be and aspire to be whatever the hell we want to do yes. and be and aspire well i think the um, many people in europe who have discovered democracy sometimes understand it better than we do because they've lived with fascism and with communism and they know the ups and downs of those societies and appreciate what it means to have freedom. Sometimes we forget. I think in this country, we're living in a time where many people have forgotten what that really means and the implications of what could be coming down the road if we're not careful. Why do you think you were, were able to start discussing the war after all those years of compartmentalizing it elsewhere? I think partly because I've watched what's happened to our society, to our country, the politics of our country, what's happened, the different administrations, the kind of decisions they've made, the kind of conflicts it's created for people. I've just simply become more interested in politics than I was when I was young, that's all. Nothing real complicated about it. Right. How would you describe your impact on computer animation? I don't know. I, I, I know when I made Hummingbird, I, didn't, I was thinking more in terms of making an, an animated film that nobody had ever made before. The idea of character animation was an alien concept at that time. And I thought, gee, wouldn't it be fun to make a drawing of a bird and see if I could do something to make it look like it flies or it moves in space? And I had available to me the resources to try that. And so for the fun of it, I decided, well, I'm going to make this film, but I'm going to pretend that the computer is an intelligent machine and let it draw the bird first. This is what the Hummingbird film starts out. And Museum Modern Art picked up on that, and he showed it in 2017 in an exhibition called Thinking Machines. But the idea was to let the computer... I like the idea of the science fiction quality about it. It had a little bit of that, not very much, but just a touch of it. And then I tried to do what I could with the tools that I had available to him, which were not pretty primitive at the time, to say the least. And then years later, as I got more involved with the computer, I began to understand its implications in other areas, especially animation. And I started one of the first two or three companies in the world in computer animation here in Columbus, Ohio. And we had a momentary success, and then it collapsed because of many factors. But I did not realize how important it was really at the time I started. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have the vision to see where the next step was because I, I couldn't anticipate the kind of software development. I knew what was needed, but I didn't realize how things would work out. What was the Hummingbird Project? First computer character animation that probably was ever done. I know um, 
The Russians made the claim that they did it in 1968, but Hummingbird was in 1967. And uh, I think it's, uh, it was significant because it demonstrated the potential of computers to do animation. Well, I didn't understand all the details of what would be involved. I anticipated that this would play an important role in society. In fact, my first NSF grant, one of the reasons I got it was because I could see many implications that other people could not see in education, in communication, in animation, and things like that. That made a huge difference. What do you think about the Smithsonian Magazine calling you the father of digital animation? I find it very strange because I I think, well, I can make some claims there, but the field of computer technology is so complex, it's hard to say one person did it. Or I think, I would say I'm part of a small cluster of people that were involved with computer animation. And I don't mind the title Father of Computer Animation. It sounds good. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but I like the idea. I told you guys this interview was amazing. We're going to get right back to Mr. Surrey and his amazing story in just a few moments. But before we do that, I want you guys to understand that your skin, hair, nails, and connective tissues are all made from collagen. A standard modern diet typically doesn't help either, since it's often lacking collagen. That's why collagen supplementation is so popular in the wellness and beauty community and why Ancient Nutrition created multi-collagen protein. Ancient Nutrition's multi-collagen protein supports healthy skin, joint health, a healthy gut, and healthy nails. Plus, instead of one to two collagen types, Ancient Nutrition's multi-collagen protein features five collagen types. It's a flavorless powder you can take in a glass of water or stir into your coffee. Made from four food sources, beef, chicken, fish, and eggshell membrane, all from non-GMO, pasture-raised, cage-free, and cruelty-free sources, it contains 9 grams of protein and 0 grams of carbs or fat. There's a lot of options out there, especially as collagen is trending, so stick with Ancient Nutrition's multi-collagen protein. The one multi-collagen praised by Better Nutrition, Women's Health, and many more. Get $10 off right now at ancientnutrition.com using the promo code MARTY. That's a special offer for our listeners and a simple way to support our show. $10 off at ancientnutrition.com. Just use the promo code MARTY. Ancientnutrition.com with the promo code M-A-R-T-Y. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Back to the war quickly. What led to you being awarded the Bronze Star? Because I wasn't thinking. The lieutenant said, I need help. The communication between the field artillery and and the infantry was by telephone wire. That was knocked out, so the artillery didn't know where to direct the guns. So we had to get information back to them. And a lieutenant says, can I somebody, somebody go back to the company headquarters, to the artillery, and tell them what we need? 
And I said, yeah, I sure, I'll do it. Like an idiot. I decided to do it. And I ran across an open field of machine gun fire and stuff. Why did it? In hindsight, I had to be stupid to do it. But that's what you do when you're 20. But I did it. I'm, I'm happy it worked out. When I think about the implications of what I was doing and what could have happened, it was just, it scares the hell out of me. Why did you volunteer? I have no idea. I didn't, I wasn't thinking. What was Something the, that had to be done, and I just simply said, okay, I'll do it. You say you weren't thinking about the implications. What were the implications? I get killed. I mean, it was a reckless thing to do. It's crazy. You run across an open field of machine gun fire and see what, what the hell could happen to you. That's all I mean. I mean, in hindsight, I'm 97 now, and I think differently. I can barely move. But in those days, I thought, in part, I was probably invincible. <laughs> I know better now. To what degree do you consider that heroic? Uh, not a great deal, because I feel there were so many soldiers that were in, for instance, landing in Normandy Beach, just landing on that beach and going up against the Germans who were entrenched with artillery and machine gun fire. Every one of them deserved the Bronze Star, but they didn't all get it. I don't know that what I did was that different, but it was something that had to be done, and I did it. You were an All-American at Ohio State. Yes. A national champion at Ohio State. A decorated war hero for the United States of America. And in many circles considered the godfather of computer animation. That is one hell of a resume. I was born on the 4th of July. <laughs> <laughs> you were destined for this. <laughs> When you rattle off all those things, it's an amazing testament to a beautiful life. Well, what, what do you hope your legacy is? Oh, <clears throat> I don't know. I'm, I'm glad things worked out well for me. On the other hand, I would like to believe that I earned much of it. I had to work hard to do it. It wasn't given to me. One of my greatest regrets is that my parents will never know. And my parents sacrificed so much immigrating from Hungary to get coming here, which gave me a better life being in this country. That's the kind of thing that I deeply regret, that they couldn't see what their sacrifice gave me. What do you remember specifically about that run across that field? Falling down, standing up, falling down, sound of bullets whizzing by, that's all. It's a situation like that, you can't, you can't be thinking. You're going basically on instinct. You're just trying to survive and get somewhere from point A to point B. That's all. Nothing complicated. What are your thoughts about the random nature of war? When I got involved with the computer, one of the things that intrigued me was something called the random number generator in computers, in computing. And I decided to make a picture 
of toys. I took that toy soldier that we all had, we played with as kids, and I created a red army and a black army. And then I took the names of people in mass media, public figures, presidents, governor, whoever, and my colleagues at the university, and they became part of a database of names. Then I had the random number generator I assign an army serial number to each of them and then assign a military rank randomly to each of them and then decide to have a war, red side against the, blue, blue, the black side. And then it printed out on top of the picture the casualty list, who got killed, who got wounded, who was missing in action, who, who uh, got a hero medal, who, who got the Bronze Star or who got the Purple Heart and so on, that kind of thing. And it's my belief that much of something like a war activity is a random event in, in the sense that you're lucky if you're alive and sometimes it's a matter of inches, a moments, circumstance that you survive and... I had to find a way to express that, and this is what I called random war, because there is a random aspect of it. Just like blacking a pond against Michigan. My hands stick up in the right place. It was pure luck, but it made me a hero. I know 60-plus years later, after you guys won the national championship, you finally got championship rings. Right. Why didn't you get them after you won the national championship? And what did it mean when you finally received it? You recall I said we ended the season and almost immediately went into the war. And they didn't do things like that in those days. It wasn't elaborate. There wasn't the hype that you have today about championships or winning things. I mean, I don't know what they had to do with availability of metal. I don't know. But it's just simply, I don't know why. We just never got that. And then when uh, Jim Trestle won the gem, uh, national championship, he was showing us the ring, and my wife said to him, that's interesting. What is that? It's a national championship ring. He said, Chuck, where's your ring? I never got one. And Trestle says, you never got a ring? We'll have to fix that. And he did fix it. So we got rings finally. As I said in the introduction, very rarely are you in a position to have an interview like that with someone who so seismically contributed to global peace and who so selflessly sacrificed their own well-being for the greater good and i'll be honest with you seeing him when i asked about the circumstances that led to him being awarded the bronze star to see him shift his position more directly to look me in the eye and to see the emotion within his face and to see the tears 
welling in his eyes was an amazing moment for me. And it was an amazing moment for my entire crew. Producer Zach Budman and my my dear friend Kayline Shounts, who was our camera operator that day. And not only that, but for Caroline Surrey, Mr. Surrey's daughter, who welcomed us into her home to conduct this interview. Mr. Surrey is in an assisted living facility now. And when I talked to Caroline ahead of this interview, she wanted to do it at her house. And I was so grateful that she wanted to do it at her house. And she said to me in the aftermath of that interview that she was so grateful that we did it on a lot of levels because her father is such a hero to this country and that he will not say it. He refuses to say it. And she wants to shout it from the mountaintops. And she said to me with tears in her eyes as I was leaving that night to head back to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to continue coverage ahead of the game of the century, 2.0. She thanked me because she said for her entire life she has begged her father for any level of detail about his service and about his sacrifice. And it's not something that he readily offers and that she learned so much about him that day as we were doing that interview. And that's the greatest endorsement. And what you guys, when you get to tell that story on a platform with the magnitude of College Game Day, that's when you realize how badly we need to tell these stories and how they are dying. Mr. Surrey's 97, so many of his, of his fellow patriots have passed on including my grandfather, Reverend James Cameron Massey, who would have turned 100 years old last week. These stories are, we we have to try to capture them before they're gone because they were so integral in shaping the United States of America. And for so long, just as you heard Mr. Surrey say, he would not discuss it. And now as they got to this position in their mid to late 90s, so many of them, they are ready to tell them. And so I'm so grateful that I got to sit with him and hear him tell his story. For me, I knew a little bit about him, obviously, because of his ties with Ohio State. And there's, um, I shared with you a video uh, in 2010, Ohio State wore throwback uniforms that were honoring that 42 team. And he made a little video and he's talking about what happens when you show up to and war and you don't show up until halftime and so i knew a little bit about him but you know i probably should have done a little homework but to hear the stories that he's talking about and in his mind he was just doing what anybody else would have done it's amazing and i'm appreciative that you did what they were asked to do that's it world war ii veterans did what they were asked to do they defended freedom they fought nazi germany and Then they came home and contributed so dramatically. And you just look at Mr. Surrey, you know, his one example to come home and chase his passion for art and become the Smithsonian Magazine's father of digital animation. And to hear him discuss creating the hummingbird, it blew my mind to... Think about the randomness of war and and everything you just heard him say there. 
And with the hummingbird, I mean, the hummingbird was 1967. It demonstrated the potential of computers to do animation. Think about that. And think about the impact of that. It's unreal to me. One man did all of those things. If you're lucky to achieve one of these things that he's done in your life, you've lived a lifetime of success. Now, compound that all together. And you heard him say it when I asked him. When you are someone who has experienced a life so dynamic and a life so contributory and a life so well lived, what do you hope is your legacy? And he went to his parents. I so wish my parents could see this. He said, I had to work for it. It wasn't given to me this life. I had to go have the desire to get it. And I so wished that my parents who were immigrants from Hungary could see what their sac they came to this country so that I could have a better life. And I would love for them to see the fruits of their sacrifice. And that's why it was so important to me. Live television is a funny thing, man. Live television is a really funny thing because I had this kind of more succinct way to put a bow on the piece to mention the digital animation aspect of Mr. Surrey's life, which we just didn't have time to tell within the piece itself on College Game Day. That was a packed show, man. You got the game of the century. You're in Tuscaloosa. You're leading into Penn State versus Minnesota, which had dramatic implications to undefeated Big Ten teams, et cetera, et cetera. So we had to be really succinct. And I had this way that I wanted to tie up that that story and in the middle of the story i started to like my mind just shifted to this is live like the the piece is airing on college game day live and i'm just i'm standing there waiting to tie it up with a live close at the end of it and i had what i thought i was going to say and then as i'm listening to him speak again in my in, in my ears I can hear the piece running. I started to think about him and his parents and him telling me, I just wish they could see what happened because they sacrificed for me. And it made me think about the world I get to see and the world I get to enjoy and the freedom that I get to enjoy because of his sacrifice. And right there, you just shift what you're going to say. It's, it's a, it's wild mentally because it's a complete shift from everything that you've thought about that entire morning. I want you to repeat what those words were because I thought what you said was the perfect way to tie this whole thing together for the package. Well, thank you. What I said was upon return home from the war, Mr. Surrey chased his passion, art. He was eventually named the father of digital animation by Smithsonian Magazine. And after a life so well lived, I asked Mr. Surrey what he hoped his legacy might be. And he said, I just wish my parents could see what happened due to their sacrifice. And Mr. Surrey, I know you're watching right now. And I want you to know on behalf of everyone at ESPN and everyone here today, you are a hero, and we appreciate your sacrifice. And it's just so true. 
I knew he was watching because I had been in contact with Caroline, his daughter, all morning, making sure they knew what time it was going to air so that they could watch that. There's so much more to his life than even I got to in the interview. And I just, um, I'm very, very, very humbled just being around him. And, you know, to sit there and see him wearing his Letterman jacket, to learn that it was a conversation with Jim Tressel, that his wife had with Jim Tressel about championship rings after Tressel and the Buckeyes won the, the national championship and, and Tressel's wearing this fat ring, championship ring. And she's like, well, what's that? He said, well, that's a national championship ring. And she turns to Mr. Surrey and said, well, where's your ring? He said, we never got rings. We went to war. And that it, it became Jim Tressel's mission to make sure that that 1942 group got national championship rings. Like that's as, that's as rich as it gets, man. That's the best kind of storytelling. It just, uh, I'm very passionate about it, and I'm so grateful I got to do it. And let me tell y'all what. I said this to Travis. You rest assured that in my next book, that dude's story is going to be in it because there is just so much that I didn't get the opportunity to touch on. So thank you so much, Mr. Surrey. Thank you so much, Caroline, for welcoming us into your lives, and we hope that we did your story justice. That interview was brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Travis, hiring can be a slow process. It can. It can take a long time, but not if you're Dylan Miskowitz. Dylan Miskowitz is the COO of Cafe Altura, and, man, he needed a director of coffee for his organic coffee company real bad. He was struggling to find qualified applicants, so he dialed up ZipRecruiter, and he knew that ZipRecruiter didn't depend on those candidates finding him. They would find them for him. The technology ZipRecruiter uses identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job rather than vice versa. So Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter, and he was so impressed with how quickly he found candidates. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter those applicants so he could find the most relevant ones. That's how Dylan found his new director of coffee, and it only took a couple days. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of every size. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T. Why ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. After that feature on Mr. Surrey ran on college game day, I ran back over to SEC Nation. We finished there. And then I went directly to Bryant-Denny Stadium to make my way in for the game of the century 2.0, which I covered. And, man, did it live up to every bit of the hype. Amazing atmosphere in Tuscaloosa. And I will tell you, man, I knew that Joe Burrow was good. I knew that Joe Burrow was completely unflappable. I knew that Joe Burrow had a moxie that you just don't see very often. I knew Joe Burrow was the Heisman front runner going in. I knew Joe Burrow was leading an LSU offense that goes through defenses like poo through a goose. I knew all of these things. We talked about it already. But for me, that's as good a performance as I've seen against an Alabama defense during my tenure 
covering college football, and I've covered a lot of Alabama games. I likened it to what I saw Deshaun Watson do in back-to-back college football playoffs when DW4 threw for 805 yards, beat Alabama once, and almost beat them twice. Burrow's the truth, man. And I got to spend a lot of time with him last week. I got to spend some time with him at midfield after the game, interviewing him and talking through his thought process. And he said about the Heisman after that game, look, of course you think about it. You grow up dreaming of having the opportunity to win it. But as you get into the opportunity to win it, you realize real quickly it's a team award. So I just want to win games. And that sounds like coaches' sons speak in so many ways and in so many in so many instances, but with him, you can't, you can't not believe that. And then, my gracious, you see the reception he got upon return to Baton Rouge. And I mean, that guy is the, the biggest star in Louisiana right now. That was one of the coolest and, things. It was like a, like when the Cavs returned after winning the championship, one of those kinds of receptions when the Nationals came, like to see those fans out there in Baton Rouge was, a pretty cool thing, and, and for a guy that is been now welcomed by the Louisiana people as they are, he is one of theirs now officially. No doubt, no doubt, man. And I love what he wrote on Twitter that night. All he didn't gloat. He, he all he wrote was Louisiana. I love you. And did you see the two I gifts? I tell that he you that, that I did see the two gifts he tweeted. Oh, just give him He's the Heisman trip, on that alone. Again, I'm a voter, and if I was voting right now, uh, there's no doubt. That, and I think I'm not alone. I'm, I'm pretty positive that most Heisman voters, when you're a guy who is putting up historic numbers, not just at your own school, but nationally, he's on pace right now to break the completion percentage record in college football history. And when you're doing that against the best competition in America, when you've beaten four top ten teams in ten weeks, I can't say enough. And not only that, again, I keep going back to I remember talking to him on the sideline of Ohio State spring games when all he did was sit there and hold his shoulder pad, like, you know, have his hands holding his shoulder pads because he wasn't on the field. So I'm not a, like to see this progression and everyone who's ever been around him is, is just thrilled for him, whether that's Michael Thomas the all-pro wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints, whether that's J.T. Barrett, who Burrow considers a brother, who that's the first person Burrow called when he learned that Joe Brady was going to be the passing game coordinator, and J.T. Barrett tells him, hey, man, you're going to love this cat. Y'all are going to be best friends. He's going to change your career. Everybody's thrilled for Joe. They know the work that he's put in. It was a phenomenal performance, and and look, I – for you Alabama fans listening who are tired of hearing about it, I also want to, I want to talk about the other side of the ball. That was just the fifth time ever, I think, since what, since 2008, maybe that Coach Saban's lost at home. That's his fifth. He has, but, yeah, cause he has five national championships and that's his fifth home loss. Look, man, he jumped in their ass at halftime and told them to get their head out of their ass. And they came out in the second half and they balled, man. I mean, the fact that they got back in that game to me was super, like super impressive. And Tua, dude, some of the throws that he makes, 
and his the way that Tua moves in the pocket. I mean, that guy's a pro right now. He's a professional football player right now, and so is Burrow for that matter. That was like the battle for the number one pick in the draft or whatever. And I look, I also applaud Alabama. Despite having lost, I applaud how they came back. They okay, first drive, Tua fumbles in the red zone. They bobble a punt snap. They I mean they they were like uncharacteristic mistakes, especially after having two weeks to prepare. And and they still made it a football game. I look, anybody who says Alabama's done in the college football playoff picture, I completely disagree. Because you never know how it might unfold. We've seen in the past that schools who suffer a loss in the SEC and, and Alabama. I mean, a couple years ago, Alabama lost the Iron Bowl on the last game of the season. They end up getting voted into the college football playoff and won the national title. This thing's weird, man. You never know what's going to happen. And there's a hell of a lot of football left to be played before we get to that point. So people thought Georgia was done when they lost to South Carolina. Georgia's far from done. Georgia will probably be in the top four this week. We'll see. I could go on and on. But it uh, ultimately, the game of the century 2.0 lived up to every bit of the hype. Kudos to the University of Alabama fan base. Man, they brought it. They brought it, boy. It was a fun atmosphere. It was cool to see so many people down there. Justin Thomas was the game day picker. It was quite a spectacle to be down there. And it's as good as, it's as good as it gets in sports. Being there that night, that's one of those ones in 30 years when I'm having a cold beer on the back porch in my rocking chair, uh, hanging out with my buddies and listening to classic country. I'll be remembering that night. Was it a, and, was and, it a who's who's of, uh, people on the sidelines too? Yes. It was a who's who of people on the sidelines. A lot of Alabama players came back. Uh, and it was really, really cool to see a bunch of those guys too. You know, that you've covered. I, I pay really close attention to the NFL careers of the guys. I don't pay a lot of close attention to the NFL itself, but I pay really close attention to guys that I covered closely, like Deshaun, like Hunter Renfro, like Damian Harris, like, you know, the, these guys. Uh, and, and it's just so cool to get to see a bunch of those guys. Leonard Fournette. Um, I'm just so proud of what they do and how well they're playing in the league. It's, it's really cool to, to see and it's always great to see them again. I got to see Damien and chat with him for a long time, uh, on the sideline on Saturday and I'm so proud of him. He's, you talk about a star when that young man's ready to be done playing football. The, the sky is the limit. His future is limitless in broadcasting. And, uh, I can't wait to, I can't wait. Maybe he'll be our coworker one day. Anyway, uh, so Travis, I got a, I got a text this week as I was preparing to go to work on Friday from some guy who was asking me why my hair color is about nine different colors. I saw Twitter freaking out about it. Yeah. I, uh, it was interesting, man, that. You know, like when you get like the most punchable face tweets, all this stuff, it's always interesting to me how much people care. Like, why do you care? And it's always men. 
Like McGee talks about that all the time with his suits or his shirts or his beard. It's always guys. Ladies are never saying that. So I get this, I get this note from this guy and he's like, why are the sides of your hair gray and the tops brown or black and your beard's red? Stop trying to look 20 years younger than you are and just own what's natural. This is natural. There is one very important variable. Yes, it's a few different colors, but you know what else it is? Still there. Full. I don't, I'm not losing my hair, but two out of three of y'all are by the time they're 35. The good news with today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss. Keeps has revolutionized the way men are treated for hair loss. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, all you do is visit the doctor online, get a medication, and it's delivered right to your home. No more weight rooms, no more pharmacy. Get doctor attention and discreet drug delivery, all from the comfort and privacy of your couch. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments really work. They're 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. So act fast. Many men even experience hair regrowth with Keeps treatments. I got a bunch of buddies who listen to Marty Smith's America podcast. They hear when we do, when we, when we do a Keeps read, they're like, Hey man, do you get any of that? Like I, I need that. You don't need that. Send it to me. Might have to start getting some keeps and shipping it off to my boys. All right, so I need to get you a If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash Marty. Receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash M-A-R-T-Y. Keeps.com slash Marty. Appreciate y'all listening so much. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to be headed to Auburn, Georgia this weekend. Can I? Uh, Looking forward to that game. Can I make one Huge little? Huge implications. Quick. Uh, what? With uh, with one little thing with with Joe Burrow, um, people, there's no S at the end of his last name. Just one little thing. I, it's been bothering me. People tweeting at me and like, if you're gonna talk trash, at least make sure his name is you spell his name right, please. Just is that annoying to you, Travis? Yeah, people keep calling him Joe Burrows. I'm like, that's not his yeah, name. He ain't Joe Burrows. No, he's he's Joe Burrow. Yeah. So by the way, this was funny to me too. Speaking of uh, texts, whatever, Twitter machine, some guy. Some guy, uh, McGee is really good. I give McGee a lot of credit. He's much better at checking mentions and responding or liking other people's stuff than I am. And he, he liked one guy's, I forget what it was. He either wrote the guy back or something where some guy was like, uh, exactly nobody calls him Joe football. Stop. Well, you're wrong. Because we call him Joe Football, and we're not alone. Those who know him, who have coached him, call him Joe Football. So we're going to continue to call him Joe Football. Anyway, thank you all for listening. We're so appreciative of your time. Thank you so much to Mr. Surrey. What an amazing person. What an amazing example. And And I am a better man for having had the opportunity to meet him and learn from him. Thanks so much to Dan Lebetard, Stu Gotts, Mike Ryan, everybody involved in the Lebetard and Friends Network. Thanks so much to uh, Travis for all the hard work that he does, making sure this thing's dialed in and, and put together for you guys. Make sure you guys are checking out Sarah Spain's That's What She Said podcast. I'll be on that coming up here real soon. Uh, make sure you listen to Mina Kimes' podcast with Lenny and everything that the Lebetard and Friends 
podcast network has to offer. Thanks so much to our law enforcement officials, our policemen and women, our firemen, our, our first responders in our communities. You keep our communities safe, and we're so grateful for that. Thanks so much to our military members here in the United States, all around the world, sacrificing so that we can be free and live in the greatest nation. Your service is important, your service is appreciated, and your service does not go unnoticed. So thank you so much. That's the Marty Smith's America podcast, volume 79. We'll do better next time around. Have a great week, guys.